had to uh, print a very sad word on the slide uh, for today, and that word that's the saddest to me is conclusion. I mean, I know uh, we've been in it for a while, and I know that you know that I love series. I probably could do about 20 sermon series on the book of Jude. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, but um, obviously, not very, not very funny today. But um, John 21, to me, is an interesting conclusion. We know that the book of Matthew be, ends with what we call the Great Commission, the sending of the disciples unto the world. Go unto all the world, he said. You know, I've given you the authority. I've given you all the authority to do so. John 21, uh, John has a different take on that commission as he has had a different take pretty much on everything in Jesus' ministry that we've studied so far. Um, the first time that I preached through it, I just preached through it as the conclusion to the series. And I noticed that there were three questions in it that were asked. Whereas in Matthew 28, um, the rabbi kind of slips from rabbinic method and gives them answers, gives them commands, tells them to go. In John, he slips back into the rabbinic method and teaches by asking questions. And there are three questions that were in there. And I just noticed those three questions and they stayed on my mind for quite a bit. About a year later, I was asked to speak at a good friend of mine's ordination, to give the, devo the devotion and the commission of ordination. And I preached those three questions because I thought those three questions were certainly appropriate for somebody who was ordained to the gospel ministry to ask themselves and to have an answer for each of those questions each day. And then I've gone back to it for every farewell sermon that I've ever had to preach. I preach uh, because I believe that he is giving this a commission to members that he's uh, the questions are given to them. And I always felt that that was what I would leave my congregation with. Now, I'm not going anywhere. But I want to give this commission as to where we begin and should begin each and every day. If there's one thing that we've learned in that as Jesus begins to incarnate our lives, these three questions should be uppermost in our mind. John saw these three questions to Peter as questions to all of us as followers of Christ. And John 21 is just uh, probably, might be, just might be uh, my favorite chapter in all the gospel of John because of everything that we've learned and all that we know, especially about Peter's state of mind and his state of heart and the disciples' state of mind and heart as they encounter Jesus this last earthly time today. So John 21, just to set up these questions, it says, after these things, and remember when he says after these things, it's immediately after where we were left off in chapter 20, when he appeared to them the second time in an enclosed room, remember, and he presented himself to Thomas to allow Thomas to experience what everyone else had experienced. It's real interesting, though, that even that encounter I'm not sure has left the desired effect with them because I'm not sure uh, what this means as to where we find them in 21. What I mean is, is that if he had come to you two times as a disciple, 
Let's, let's say we're not Thomas. Let's say he's, he's been to us at least two times. Would you believe then in the resurrection? Would you believe then that truly he is who he says he is, he's done what he says is going to be done, and he's still doing what he said is going to be done? Would take two times? Well, I'm not sure because it says immediately after this, this happens. This scene right here. So, so hang with me here. Hang, hang with me. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin. Now Thomas is even there, okay? Thomas is even there. Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Peter says to them, I'm going what? I'm going fishing. And they all say to him what? We'll go with you. We'll go with you. And immediately John says, wasn't a successful trip. He doesn't leave that verse off. He immediately doesn't want to go into the whole night. He just says that they went out, they got into the boat, but that night they caught what? Nothing. So again, I can understand the disciples doing this before they knew he had been resurrected, before uh, they'd been given all this proof. But now, now that they've seen him, what statement are they making by going fishing? How long has it been since they've been fishing? All the way back, all the way back to the beginning of the ministry. As a matter of fact, one of the very fast, first uh, acts of fishing, or the last act of fishing for them, was this miracle that, that he had performed them. And you can find it in, in Mark and you can find it in Luke. But they haven't been in a boat, especially in a boat uh, to make a living, if you will, for three and a half years. Now, the crucifixion has occurred. Now, this supposed resurrection has occurred. And I say supposed or I say alleged because it appears they don't believe, do they? They don't believe it's real. I don't know what they believe. All I have and all John wants to give us is this sign right here. That apparently they think they need to go back to their what? To their former life. Their brand new title, their brand new name that they were given. All of it. All of it. They said we need to go back. I could see Peter feeling this way. But apparently these disciples feel this way too. Can I still call myself a disciple after what's happened? After what Grady read to us happened to Peter. Isn't Peter questioning? Can I actually even still call myself a disciple? Can I still actually uh, be, have the guts enough or the arrogance enough, if you will, to be called a fisher of men? I know that Peter doesn't feel that way, and apparently these disciples don't either. They don't get it. Three and a half years of ministry has been shattered by the crucifixion. It's shattered by this myth of the resurrection. And even though he's already appeared to them twice, they still don't know what to do. They are still confused because they didn't get what they really wanted. What was it they wanted? They didn't want Jesus to die. Because again, in their minds, if Jesus dies, there's no way he can be who he says he is. 
And if he isn't that, then he doesn't get his throne in heaven. We don't get our 12 thrones with him in heaven. They don't get what they want. The crucifixion and the myth of the resurrection has upturned all of that. Can you imagine how you would feel right now? When you bet it all? Peter actually tried to call it out, just about the middle of the ministry. He saw it all slipping away. He saw the former life actually slipping away. And actually, they found out that they were going to rule with him on 12 thrones because Peter was the one that spoke up and said, Lord, we've given everything away. We've, we've left behind everything to follow you. What's in it for us? Can you imagine betting everything on it? So to me, at, at, at the least, at the least, the fishermen disciples are hedging their bets. I need to make a living again. So I might as well get back in the boat. At worst, I think they believe that their betrayal, their abandoning him in his hour of need has disqualified them from discipleship. Maybe, even maybe, has disqualified them from their salvation. I believe that they believe that they're lost. They came to believe in him as Savior and Messiah, but what do you do when you abandon that Messiah? What do you do when you turn your back on him? See, that incarnation hasn't taken hold. That born-again experience is still uh, in its infancy with them. Peter's in charge, but notice where he takes him. Peter's making the statement. I think he feels disqualified himself. The previous resurrected meetings with Jesus said, Jesus, actually, if you look at all of them, he has said nothing to them about what happened, does, does he? He doesn't say a word, and he especially, he doesn't talk to Peter. He hasn't said a word to Peter since looking at him after that cock crowed the third time. So I think that Peter thinks, if you will, his own self-condemnation, he's reading into Jesus' actions. Jesus hasn't spoken to him since. So I think Peter assumes that Jesus must feel the same way about him that he currently feels about himself. One who betrays, one who denies, is not worthy to be a disciple, let alone to be in charge. So he takes them what? He takes them fishing. And they catch how much? Nothing. <laughs> Do you think it's all of a sudden because they forgot how to fish? No, I don't think so. Imagine, just imagine, I, you know, I truly believe, I truly believe that Jesus made sure that they caught nothing all night. Because imagine if they'd have had a good night, right? If they'd have had a good night, what would Peter think then? And again, he's got most of the disciples in the boat with him. And these are the guys that are supposed to go unto all the world. They're supposed to reach us with their word. So I think Peter, uh, Jesus, you know, he makes sure. He just makes sure that they didn't catch nothing. So imagine Peter's mindset. I can't imagine being as low as he must be right now. He betrayed away his spot at Jesus' side. 
And Peter's got to be thinking to himself, now the only way that I know that I left behind to follow him and now I stink at it too. I can't be a fisher of men anymore and apparently I can't even catch stinking fish. You have to remember something about Peter though too. For Peter, it's not good enough to be a disciple. It's not good enough to be one of 12. Right? It just isn't good enough. It's not good enough to be a fisher of men. It's not good enough just to be called to a ministry. We can relate to Peter. Peter needs to be in charge. It's not good enough just to be in a church. And if we ever believe that, if we ever believe that our call, each of our calls to ministry, that one is more important than the other, that one is more vital than the other, then here comes the question. The very first question. It says that just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know what? They didn't know it was Jesus. Now we're not 100% sure why, except that they're probably 300 yards offshore. That's quite a ways if somebody's standing on the beach. It's just a guy standing on the beach. Jesus says to them, children, that's an unusual greeting, isn't it? See, it wouldn't be unusual for somebody to be standing on the beach, especially as the sun comes up. It probably, usually, was the uh, owner of the market that they were going to sell the fish to. The owner of the market has a stake in all this. So what they would do is they would come out, and in the rising sun, they might be able to still see a school of fish, and they would direct them over there to see it. So it wouldn't be unusual, but I don't know if he would call them children. Children... You have no fish, do you? Question one, you have no what? You have no fish. And what's the answer? They answered what? Because it's the truth, isn't it? To make that spiritual, to come ahead, we have to confess no. Jesus comes to the church today and he says, children, you have no fish, do you? Right? There's us. There's always us, the remnant, right? The remnant. But think of all the people that aren't with us today. And not just because of the pandemic. Not just because uh, people need to be safe. Not just because they may not have access online. But before the pandemic, we knew that there were plenty of people that were gone from our midst who aren't coming back, right? We like to... Forgive me for a second. We like to talk about being the fastest growing Christian organization in the world. Up to what now? 28 million members. But do you know over the last 30 years we've lost 16 million? 16 million, although we're at 28. But we're still growing. Are we? Children... You have no what? You have no fish, do you? He's speaking to us. He's speaking to the followers. And it isn't so much that he's chastising us for our work. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. But I think what he's doing is that he's talking about where we have forgotten our work comes from and what we really are responsible for. 
Because we look at methods, we look at evangelism programs, we look at all kinds of things that are formulas that are supposed to reach people and win people. I think we've been doing that for 150 years. And the reason that it is no longer working, number one, probably, is that it's never worked. It may get people to come. But does it give, give us the Thomas experience? When we bring people to church, what does the program do for them after that? Nothing, right? Who's supposed to be there to assure that they truly have a born-again experience, be able to walk with God? Is that up to us? No. And I think that we're at a point right now where nothing else is going to work anymore. There are no imitations to this. We either become born again, we either have Christ incarnate us with his love and his grace and begin to love people with that love and grace, or we will always be asking, where are your fish? So the confession, the true confession is, no, we don't have any. We don't have any. Even the people that we thought we won, even the people that have testimonies that say, you know, I heard this message and I came, even the people that we thought, that wasn't us, was it? Who was it? Well, what happened next? As soon as they answered no, Jesus says something to them. He says, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That's already happened once in their ministry. It happened about three years ago. Like I said, it was the last time that I know of that they actually went fishing. And why did Jesus do that for them that day? It was to give them a sign. And I also believe it was to give them a sign as to when they trans, uh, when they uh, Trans, transfigured or when they transposed or when they moved on, okay? <laughs> when they moved on from fishing for fish to fishing for men. You can cast your net all you want. You can have good programs and principles and everything all you want, but there are going to be nights, long, long nights when you will catch nothing And when that happens, maybe, just maybe, you'll turn to me. Maybe when the world quits listening to what we think the message is, maybe we turn to him to reincarnate us with the message. Cast your net on the other side of the boat. See, it's possible, why fish at night? Actually, why net fish at night? Why fish at night? Because if you fish during the daytime, especially when the sun is high, you get up next to a school of fish, and a school of fish is swimming, what you have to do is you have to toss the net over the top of them, right? And then drag it in before they notice what happened. Well, when you fish in the day, especially with the sun up, you throw the net, they can see it. And when they do, they what? 
Also on the Sea of Galilee, once it begins to get hot, the fish don't want to be at the surface. They head down. You can't fish for a net during the daytime. But there is a possibility at daybreak, as long as you do this, as long as you keep the sun on one side of the boat and you throw the net on the dark side, you can still fish until about 10 o'clock or so, as long as you continue to do that. What Jesus has done twice now is to tell them to throw the net on the wrong side of the boat. Break every, the most fundamental rule of net fishing, break it. Don't rely on your fundamentals. Don't rely on your instinct anymore. Throw it on the dark side of the boat, a light side. And both times that it happened, both times, they had, a, they had a hall that they couldn't even bring it in. And I want to say, I want to tell you this, that when he did it the first time, I believe that's when Peter began to be born again. Because up until that point, Peter, I don't know, was just doing his bratty little brother a favor by following this guy around. And I always remember that after it was hauled in, what did Peter do? He looked at Jesus and said, Lord, I am a sinful, sinful man. Because he argued with him about the fish, right? Lord, we've been out here all night. But for you, we'll cast one more time. And Peter's thinking, no way. I can't wait to rub this in, the, in this country preacher's face. He's not a fisherman. It doesn't make any sense at all. Daytime, shallow water, it makes no sense. Same results here. Peter feels he's disqualified himself from discipleship. He's taking his life back into his experienced, qualified hands. Jesus just proved to him that without him, he can't even fish for fish anymore. The harvest belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. Spiritually, fish and fishers of people. And you might be thinking that maybe this might be a little bit too far, but I think he also gave the message to Peter that, Peter, if you walk away, if you walk away and you want to go back to fishing, I'll take care of you then too. The harvest belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. The answer to the question, children, you have no fish, do you? The answer is what? No. We never have. We never have. Even if next week we fix the baptistry, we baptize three, 4,000 people, that harvest isn't ours. It's him standing on the shore asking this question. Amen? See, if Peter pulls this off on his own, his own lifetime experience, He'll never learn what Jesus wants to teach him today. He won't come to breakfast today. Expertise, professionalism, method, becoming perfect. We've tried to substitute love and grace with all of those, haven't we? And where has it gotten us? And we forget the people that really are called, the sinners, the prostitutes, the betrayers. 
The very first successful evangelist who proclaims the risen Savior is a prostitute herself. She proclaimed it last week. Him lifted up is what draws people to him, acting on his invitation. Then he wins people. He converts. We forget it's his call. It's his ministry. It's his hospital. It's his church. We're his children. Children, you have no fish, do you? The world says use experts, use perfect people. Use men and women with degrees. The kingdom of heaven approaches the sinner just as they are and says, come with me. And how do I know that? Because of what happens leading up to the next question. Ready to move on? The disciple who Jesus loved, who's this? John leans over to Peter and says what? It is the Lord. When Peter heard this, it was the Lord. He put on some clothes for he was naked and he jumped into the sea. Hey, by the way, it's the first time that Peter has ever taken anyone else's word for it. He didn't last week, did he? He wasn't gonna take Mary's word for it. And I'm actually a little bit surprised that he's gonna take John's word for it. But John leans over and says, man, I know who that is. Peter says, get out of here. It's the Lord. He goes, you gotta be kidding. But he jumps into the sea. He jumps in. Now follow me on this. I think he's trying to get there to be alone with Jesus. He wants to be alone with him. Because I still think, he thinks, that he can get control of this situation. See, if he's there alone with no other witness, especially, especially these guys who witnessed his betrayal and probably have heard about it for nothing, nothing else except it, they gotta be sick of hearing the story. If he can get there without those guys there, maybe he can take control of this situation. What if he also thinks that being first and being eager and being boastful about going to Jesus just might change Jesus' mind about him? Because that's the way he's been with Jesus this entire time, right? If I get there first, if I prove I'm better, if I prove I want this more, then maybe Jesus won't pronounce on me what I'm so fearful that he already has, and that is that I'm out. See, it's gonna get there, it's gonna be a bit before they get there, because they have to come in the what? They gotta come in the boat. First of all, they gotta haul this net in that has so many fish that it's beginning to tear, and they just lost quite a bit of their muscle. They gotta get that net in, they got to get the sails down and they got to begin to row. It's going to be a little while before they get there. Peter thinks he's got some time. He has time to take charge. What I sense here is his desperation. How about you? I think he's desperate. See, if Jesus hasn't forgiven him, and he, has to re- and, and he has to refuse Peter's request to be forgiven. At least there won't be any witnesses to hear it. He's trying to control what? 
He's trying to control the environment. I think he's desperate. So you continue to read. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, and though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? For they all knew what? That it was the Lord. I have one devotion and one sermon that I really believe. It's when they realized that he had fixed them breakfast, that's when they knew that it was him. When the king of the kingdom of heaven, when the king of kings, when the creator of all the world sat down on his knees and fixed them breakfast, that's when they knew that it was the Lord. The God of the universe, this miracle catch. By the way, it wasn't even their catch which was a miracle in the first place. It was their catch plus his catch. He had already been fishing. There was already fish on the fire. And apparently he doesn't let Peter stay alone with him. I don't know what he did to keep Peter at bay. I don't know what he did. Maybe, maybe he sat Peter down and don't, doesn't say a word to him, which now makes it even worse. Because there aren't any words that Jesus has said to him. Jesus is just confirming what Peter already knows. I can't be forgiven for this. I can't be forgiven for this. And this proves it. So with all of that, by the way, you'd think you'd see a strand of humility amongst Peter. That you'd be, you know, just a, a, a little bit of humility uh, in him or a little bit of repentance. But actually, it doesn't, it hasn't all changed that much because it says, bring some fish. And then what did Peter do? What did Peter do to bring the fish? He goes, he grabs the entire net and drags it over to him. Sounds just like him, doesn't it? Don't wash my feet, wash my whole what? Wash my whole body. If it's you, command me to walk on the water. He speaks up and pronounces the words that everyone else may feel but are too afraid to say. We left everything. What's in it for us? You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's good for us to be here. We should build three temples, one to Moses, one to Elijah, and one to Jesus. And what did the father say to him when he said that? Shh. Talk less. Listen to my son. And then the one that rings in his ears right now. I will not deny you ever. I will die with you. He so desperately wants to be number one again. He may not want to be just a disciple, but he needs to be in charge. He needs to feel superior. He needs to be better than those 11 other guys. And right now, the only one that he feels that he's better than is Judas. He 
He wants to be the greatest, but only by the world's rules. It's because he's superior. Power rules, strength rules, first rules. That's what he wants. Jesus has another plan. And he sets the scene brilliantly. I wonder if you've caught this before. He uses all of Peter's senses to do it. When they had gone ashore, they saw a what? A charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. The word literally is a heap of burning coals. It only appears twice in all the New Testament. It's good for barbecuing fish, but it's also designed to do something for Peter. The the last time that we saw it was back in this verse right here. The slaves and the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing around and warming it themselves, warming themselves. Peter also was standing with them and warming himself. The only other incident of a charcoal fire in this gospel is the last time Peter was standing around him was the last time that Peter was in the presence of Jesus and he did what? He denied him. Jesus is setting a scene, isn't he? And he's using all his senses. Is there one of your five senses that will call you back to an event faster than your nose? You give me a piece of watermelon bubble gum today, and I can feel what my Little League uniform felt like. Yes, I'm old enough that we wore flannel, okay? I can feel what it felt like. Watermelon bubblegum was made by Bub's daddy. It was a tube, and to a nine-year-old, it was this long. And we'd fold it up into about like this and put it in the back pocket of that uniform. I smell that today I can feel that uniform. Gray uniform, blue letters, Sierra Vista Lions. Because we were sponsored by the Lions Club. That wasn't our mascot. He's using all Peter's senses to take him all the way back to that night. Because it's the one journey Peter does not want to take. It's the one journey that a sinner cannot take. Don't take me back to that moment. I heard something that really appealed to me the other day. If Jesus is Peter's mentor, though, sometimes you can't be a mentor unless first you were a tormentor. the one place Peter doesn't want to go and Jesus is taking him there with his memory, with even with his sense of smell. John adds, this was now the what? The third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. John just wants to remind us, it's taken how many times for us to even believe that he's been raised from the dead? It's taken three times. They all know now there are no doubts this time. We're almost there to the next question. We're almost there. But what gets me, what I can't get over is the first line of the next verse. When they'd what? When they'd finished breakfast. How long do you think it takes to eat fish and bread for breakfast? I don't think it matters how long it takes. What gets me is that no matter how long it took, no one said a word. Remember before on the second time that he appeared? 
It said that the disciples were afraid. No, uh, back before when, when he said, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let's go back. Let's go back to the Mount of Transfiguration. It was the third time that he had told them that he was going to be resurrected on the third day. Remember when they said they'd like to ask him about what he meant about raising on the third day, but they were afraid to ask him. Now they know that it's him and no one has said a word. Are you kidding me? After everything that's happened over the past few days, are you telling me that you wouldn't have one question? That you couldn't say one thing? And I think reason being is because they all know at that moment exactly who they are, exactly what they've done, and how unworthy they are to be sitting there eating breakfast with the king of kings. They're what? Speechless. Isn't that what we're told in the end? Every knee will bow and not one word will be said, right? Silent, not one word. Until the confession then comes out, right? But no defense of yourself, no excuses. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Not one word comes out of their mouth. They didn't say a word. And by the way, the first one to speak won't be one of them. They all have the same question on their mind. What about us? What about Peter? Finally, Jesus speaks the next question. They'd finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I think immediately at that moment, I picture kind of over Peter's shoulder, I picture that the other disciples relax. They smile, they sit back, they start chewing their food again. They bump fists with each other and they say, oh man, finally he speaks. And it isn't words of condemnation, it's a question. It completely disarms them, it completely puts them at ease. But the one disciple in all of this that is not relaxed after he hears this is who? Is Peter. Do you love me more than these? Now, you can, you can uh, translate this or you can interpret this in two ways. Do you love me more than these? It can be translated as, do you love your friends more than you love me? It's quite possible that's what he's asking right now. I don't think that's what he's asking. What he's saying is, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than they do? Because that was your boast. Your boast was that you would die with me. Your boast was that you loved me more than they do. Your boast has always been that you're better than they are. Do you love me more than these? Do you mean any more to me than they do? Because Peter really believed that he did at one time, didn't he? Jesus is, to me, lovingly with the fire and everything else. He's drawing Peter out. He's bringing him to wherever Peter could be, comfortable at least, and then stop right there. And this is as comfortable as Peter gets right here. Lord, you know that what? That I love you. That's as far as he can go. That's as far as he can go. So notice he doesn't answer the question, does he? 
Because answering the question would have to be, it would have to be a complete confession to answer that question. He would have to come right out and say and look him right in the eye and in front of all the guys that he had boasted in front of, he would have to say those words, yes, I love you more than they do. Or at least I believe I did. And he won't go there. All he can do is say this, what? Lord, I love you. That second question, though, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? That's all Peter can get out. He can't quite confess fully, especially not in front of those guys. The beautiful thing is that Jesus doesn't demand to hear it. Jesus isn't there to humiliate him, is he? Not at all. He lets him keep that answer. He doesn't demand groveling. Confession isn't a punishment that brings forgiveness. How do we know? Jesus' answer. What was it? Feed my lambs. Jesus commissions him again. He gives him his ministry back right there. I'm just saying, he didn't, he didn't even confess. He did what he could. He did as much as he could. And Peter and Jesus says, you're back, man. Welcome home. It's the best he can do. The reason that I ask this second question of everybody who comes to follow Jesus is that there are going to be many days, many, many days in your ministry where sometimes that will be the best that you can do is simply to have the words, Lord, I love you, but that's all I got today. That's all I got. My life is a mess. It doesn't back the words up, but that's all I got today. And Jesus' words back will be, feed my lambs. Because if there's one thing that a hurting world needs to know is that we hurt too. And when we do, we hurt with them. That message right there, that message of authenticity, that I can't practice what I preach, that that I don't live up to these words right here. I love the Lord God with all my heart, with all my strength, with all my soul. But please, stay out of my closet. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. That's the message the world needs, is that you're welcome home again with just the words. If that's all you got, that's all I'll take. How deep is Peter's love for Jesus right now? All he has is the words. His actions don't show it. He bears the fruit of betrayal. He's still trying to boast like he did before. Yet Jesus tells him, feed my sheep. Now, now, Jesus is going to take him back to this episode three times. It's an intentional response to all three denials. He doesn't want Peter getting up saying, okay, so you forgave me for the first denial, but I denied you three times. 
Jesus said, you know what? I don't have to do this for me, but I'll do it for you. I'll take you back to each and every one of them. And it's a message to us that when he forgives sin, he forgives all of it. Not a degree, not whatever we happen to be remorseful over, not whatever we happen to be able to confess. If we denied him three times, he forgives us three times. If we ask for forgiveness 70 times, he forgives us 70 times. 70 times seven, forgiveness. If you confess your sins, he who is faithful and true will forgive your sins and cleanse you from the two other denials too. Peter, Greg, Grady, do you love me more than these? It's also a reminder to the betrayer that he's no longer remembering the betrayal. He's calling him to be his disciple in spite of what he's done. I even get to the point that he's not calling just in spite. He might even be calling him because of what he's done. It comes to the third time. It says the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I what? So I'm sorry, I still don't have anything but the words. That's all I've got. We've been sitting here this entire time. I haven't, I haven't had a chance to go out and prove myself. I haven't had a chance to go out and win souls and fish for fish and fish for men. I haven't had a chance to do any of that. I'm hurt. That's why he's hurt. He still thinks that he needs to earn this. And Jesus just says, feed my what? Sheep. This is the only acceptable state right here to follow Jesus. This is why this question is here. This is it right here. Broken. That's what we need to be, broken. Because when we're broken is the only way we can be whole in Christ. Relying on nothing but his mercy. His mercy is all we've got because sometimes that's all we have. Lord, you know that I love you. That's all I got today. That's all I got. I think Peter is saying, I love you, I betrayed you, I love you. I think he wants to just scream. But Jesus doesn't answer his betrayal, not one word about his betrayal, only feed my sheep. This is Peter's call. This is your call. This is mine. And then he tells him a little bit about his future. He says, Peter, don't worry, this is what's gonna happen. You're worried about what you're gonna do. You're worried about how you perform. You're worried about whether or not you can fish for men. Look what's gonna happen to you. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt, go wherever you wished. That describes Peter perfectly, doesn't it? Nobody told Peter what to do. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go going to be strapped to a cross. 
He said this to indicate the kind of death that he would glorify God. And after he said this, he goes, follow me. The betrayer one day will be a martyr. Are you kidding me? What is it that marks a disciple? Love, even unto a crucified death. A love that Jesus only loves with. One that forgives as Jesus forgives. A love that doesn't compare itself to anyone else. Because then that is the third question. What you're always going to be tempted with is to begin to compare it to somebody else. Because that's what happened next. Peter turned, he, he has this moment with Jesus. I don't know, it doesn't say when they got up and they walked away. But he has this moment and they think they're alone. And Peter turns and he sees who? He sees John, doesn't he? He turns and he sees the, the disciple Jesus loved following them, the one who reclined next to Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, and this is question number three, Lord, what about him? Lord, what about him? The question of the world. What will others say? What are others doing? What do others think? What are they gonna say about me if I love people the way you love people? They're gonna say I'm weak. They're gonna say that, that uh, I, I uh, don't have any sound doctrine. They're gonna, they're gonna say I'm afraid to call sin a sin. If I love like you have loved, what are they gonna say about me? What's gonna happen to me if I empty myself that way? What about others? I was abused, I wasn't loved. You mean I can't hold my own grudge? I can't continue to place blame on somebody else? Because Jesus' answer to that question for the church who looks to give love and to give grace when the church seems to have turned its back, he said, the answer, whoops, we'll get it. If you can get it back, give it to me, man. I'm sorry, I hit it once. But Jesus said to him, if, it is, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. He said, I don't care what anyone else does to you or thinks about you. You think I don't know what you're going through? Did Jesus go through with what people said about him? Of course he did, didn't he? He experienced that how many fold? The church told him he was anti-law. The church told him he actually was of the devil. All because he invited people in who they didn't feel belonged. And all of a sudden now, they're, they're not living out or living up to what they're supposed to be living up to. You think P Jesus doesn't know what Peter is talking about right here? You think Jesus doesn't understand? He does, doesn't he? What is that to you, he says? What is that to you? You follow me. May it might mean that we have to leave somebody behind if they can't get on board with a mission of love 
a mission of grace? I don't know. But Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. You and me, Jesus said, every day. When I ask, do you have any fish? And your answer inevitably is what? No. Cast your net on the other side. Let's go fishing you and me. Let me cast the net. Let me show you where to cast. You just keep doing what I asked you to do. You just keep letting me live in you. Do you love me more than these? Our answer should be what? It should be no. (laughs) I don't love you any more than anybody else. I'm not higher than anybody else. I'm not more righteous than anybody else. In fact, I'm the chief of sinners. And when we answer that, we hear what? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And then the other question, what is that to you? The last time that I preached this, I was trying to work out a mission statement actually to bring here, a mission statement that I thought that we could kind of resonate around. And it was taken from a pastor that uh, my best friend in ministry, uh, he and I, that we really admired. And years and years and years ago, he said that he believed that the local church was the hope of the world. And I actually, we both believe that's true. We both believe it's true, but we both began to uh, uh, amend it and make it um, a little more livable, at least for us. And when I came here, I presented it to you. I said, I believe that a Christ-centered, grace-oriented Adventism Adventism lived out in a selfless local church is the hope of the world. It's a little long, it's a little clunky, but now I don't think it's even good enough to be Christ-centered. We have to be Christ-incarnated. And that's what John carries through all the way up until here. Jesus answered all three of these questions. When we answer back with our hopelessness, his answer is your hope is completely in me because I am living in you. And I've designated that no matter who you are, if you let me live in you, you're my reach to the world. You're the hope of the world. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the word became flesh and walked among us. He's not here to walk anymore. Why? Because he put his spirit in you and me so that we can walk. So that every day we become the answer to those questions. So I believe a Christ-incarnated, grace-oriented Adventism lived out in a selfless local church is the hope of the world. It's the hope of Peoria. It's the hope of Sun Cities. It's the hope of the world. John concludes by saying, you know, there's so many other signs so many other signs. He concluded the last chapter by saying this, that I imagine that if we all were written down, it couldn't be contained in all the books in all the world. And that's what he's trying to get across to us, isn't he? And 
this last chapter, this last sign, this last appearance, and these three questions and the answers that he gives to all three of those questions, I think what he's saying is, you're not going to find this in a book. We don't find it by reading about it. We find it by living, experiencing him in us and answering those questions each day. Children, you have no fish, do you? Do you love me more than these? What is that to you? So I'm thankful that the signs remind us of that today. I'm thankful for this journey that we've taken. By the way, if you want a little bit more of the journey, we haven't finished it in prayer meeting yet. You can join us. We go back to, where are we at, guys? We go back to Pilate, the trial before Pilate. If you want a little bit more, come back and join us. But as far as the sermon series, here we conclude, but John commissions each of us today. Each of us today. Thanks for hanging in there with me, especially the last 26 weeks. It's been a beautiful ride for me. I hope it has for you. Thank you all.